0: even as I begin this sermon this very instant, I know that there are probably about 200 clocks on 200 different smartphones that have started at an effort at corporate technological accountability to keep my sermon on schedule. I know a lot of women are ordering mandatory naps at home after this sermon, especially for themselves, after getting very little sleep at the retreat. I know a lot of men are stampeding out the door for food and fellowship and football right after the service, so I'll get started. When we come to 1 John, as when we come to any book in the Bible, we're jumping into the middle of a story. And as with any story, 1 John has its own characters and its own plot line, and its own themes. Aaron did a great job a couple of weeks ago describing a lot of these things, so I'm not going to try to spend too much time going over old ground but the central characters of this story are first, the remaining faithful and believing community of John's letter, and then, secondly, a group of confessing believers that have departed because they began embracing a set of heretical beliefs, leading to false practices and a break in fellowship with God and other Christians. And so in response to this, John is giving his readers a full gospel, as Aaron titled his sermon last week. John is saying to his audience, I know those who left would use words like Jesus and God and salvation. They redefine those words to mean something twisted and perverse. And So when true Christians, when real Christians talk about Jesus, this is who we mean." I know that those who, claimed, that those who left claim to know God, but those who really know God give evidence that they know Him through lives that look like this. I know those who left believe that authentic Christianity was an individual private faith experienced internally in the heart through emotional experience and obsessed with personal identity. But I'm here to tell you that Christianity primarily is corporate and communal and public, and can be demonstrated and seen through acts of brotherly love performed within and outside the community. And so, as Aaron alluded to last week, at the core of 1 John, we find a theme of evaluation, a theme of diagnosis, which is why we find John so often saying, this is how we know. I'm writing these things so that you will know. When you hold various confessions of faith up to the light, this is how you know that they're the real deal. In fact, one commentator has put forth the idea that the central theme of the book can be found in verse 5 of chapter 1, where John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John is interested in holding up three major gospel areas to the light of God's evaluation in this letter. Sound doctrine, an obedient life concerned with holiness, and having right affections in the heart towards God and towards others. And while we see them as three separate issues for John, they're all interrelated, interlocking parts of one gospel, which cannot be divided. Young Christians, young theologians This morning, I have two questions for you to think about as you listen to the Word of God preached. First of all, what does it mean to confess your sins? And secondly, why is it that God forgives us when we do? What does it mean to confess our sins? And why is it that God forgives us when we do? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken through his apostle John. A gospel that finds us in our dark shadows with its light and causes us to be people of light who live in honest confession while turning us into grateful commandment keepers. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask once again this morning for your light to dispel the darkness and gloominess that may be in our hearts and our minds this morning. To give us insight and understanding, and to give us love for you, and love for your gospel, and love for obedience. Through your word, we ask these things in the name of the Son. Amen. You can be seated. It's 1938 and a young, beautiful English woman named Iris Henderson suddenly finds herself seated on a passenger train with a terrible headache. Her vision is blurry and her eyes slowly open, and she sees the warm, smiling face of an elderly woman sitting in the seat directly across from her. Their passenger compartment is crammed with other travelers, all of them somehow related to one another and speaking the language of Croatia the country that Iris has just left on her way back to London. Their facial expressions and shifting eyes make it clear that they wish no interaction with Iris. It's mid-afternoon, and the sun is getting lower as the elderly woman grabs Iris's unsteady hand and gently guides her to the dining car. On their way to the car, they pass several other people. A Croatian cabin boy who works on the train... And he's proud of the little English that he knows so as to impress the English clientele. They pass two older English women who can't seem to talk about anything else except their love for their rose gardens. And they pass a rich man who's very famous back in London, but who is returning from vacationing with a woman who's not his wife. Iris and her new companion sit down together and share afternoon tea as the woman introduces herself as Miss Froy. Miss Froy explains that she is also English, but has been living in Croatia for many years as a governess to the wealthy aristocratic Croatian family with whom they had just been sitting with. But suddenly, Iris' headache begins to get worse. The sun's reflection and all the tableware begins to swirl as waves of dizziness begin to hit her. Miss Froy frantically tries to get Iris' attention, and as Iris begins to fade to unconsciousness, all she can remember is Miss Froy repeating her own name Miss Froy, Miss Froy, Miss Froy. When Iris awakens again, she can't find her new friend anywhere. She searches every seat, in every car, in every passageway, in every corridor. She interrogates every conductor and ticket master, but not only do they not know where Miss Froy is, none of them even remember seeing her. Finding an English doctor on board who knows the Croatian language, Iris frantically persuades him to interpret for her so she can ask the rude and detached aristocratic family about Miss Froy. To shock, they all convincingly, convincingly reply that they have no idea who Iris is talking about. She proceeds to question the Croatian cabin boy who also claims not to remember Miss Froy. The two elderly Rose Garden enthusiasts who had seen Iris and Miss Froy go by on their way to tea claim to have never seen Miss Froy. The same goes for the famous man and his mistress, both of whom who had just seen Iris and Miss Froy have a conversation outside their stateroom mere mere minutes before. Iris' medical friend begins to speculate that Iris must be going crazy, and so does pretty much everybody else on the train. But through her persistence, Iris eventually reveals a plot. Her own headache and dizziness had resulted from a strong hit on the back of her head, which had taken place shortly before boarding the train, only the strike was intended for Miss Froy. Miss Froy had been a real person, not simply a made-up ghost of Iris's deluded mental state. Ms. Froy, while working for the aristocratic Croatian family, had accidentally stumbled upon their plan to assassinate a politician who stood in the way of their family's success. And in true godfather, mobster-like fashion, the family had secretly kidnapped Ms. Froy and had stowed her away in the baggage compartment to dispose of her after reaching their destination. But the most most powerful message of Hitchcock's 1938 movie entitled, The Lady Vanishes, is not the sinister Croatian plot. In fact, almost the opposite is true. The movie really isn't about the details of the conspiracy at all because the lies told by the other passengers had nothing to do with the conspiracy. They weren't even a part of it. The English rose gardeners didn't admit to remembering Miss Froy because they didn't want to slow the train down for a legal search because that would mean delaying them getting back to their precious rose gardens. The Croatian cabin boy quickly dismissed the existence of Miss Froy because it was easier to say no in English than to try to describe what he had seen, which would mean revealing that he really didn't know English all that well in the first place. And of course, the famous English adulterer and his mistress didn't want to admit to knowing Miss Froy because they didn't want the inevitable press coverage that would reveal to all London that they were upper-crust cheats and philanderers. The Lady Vanishes is about how individuals seeking to live in the shadows, each having his, his or her own reason to hide in the dark from the light of truth unknowingly, and collectively contribute to great evil. In the Apostle John's word from our passage this morning, they all walked in darkness, not in truth, and not in fellowship with God or one another. And as a result, all remained in further danger of evil to be perpetrated upon them. And as most of us in this room believe, this describes... The absolute state of our fallen world, as our doctrine of depravity tells us. But John isn't writing his first epistle to a world that has not heard of Jesus, but to a community of confessing believers. And in this passage, John is giving us two evaluations, two diagnostics to measure authentic Christianity. First, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10... John tells us that walking in the light, having an authentic Christianity, is demonstrated by living in an honest way with our darkness, with our sin, through the process of confession. Secondly, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, walking in the light, having an authentic Christianity, is demonstrated by reflecting Jesus' own holiness in our lives, in our words, in our actions and in our affections and loves. As I said earlier, if the central theme of 1 John is one of evaluation, of diagnosing a true Christian profession from a false one, then chapter 1, verse 5 is a key verse. Let's read it again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all going back over chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 not because Aaron missed anything or didn't do a good job last week but because it ties in so importantly to our understanding of our passage in chapter 2 and by God by God calling and by calling God light in verse 5 John is simply drawing from a deep well of Old Testament imagery and theology in Genesis 1 God creates light In Exodus 13, right after leaving Egypt, God leads his people as a bright pillar of cloud by day and as a bright burning pillar of fire at night. David calls the Lord his lamp, giving light to his darkness in 2 Samuel 22. And we all know this song based on Psalm 119 about the Lord giving light to our feet and to our path through his word. Malachi, the last... Voice of the Old Testament, as we remember from last year's preaching, prophesies that the sun, the S-U-N of righteousness, would arise upon Israel. And of course, he was speaking of Jesus. And so when John says that God is light in verse 5, he is saying that God has always been the source of light, not just created light, but the source of guidance for his redeemed people, the source of evaluation To discern between what is true and what is false. And the source of all holiness and purity before whom all shadows flee and all stains are revealed. The second and third century church father, Tertullian, once remarked, Draw whatever veil of darkness you please over your deeds. God is light. It's the picture of going down to your dark, damp basement and turning on the light and watching all of the crickets and all the cockroaches scurry and run for the shadows. And what John is saying here at the end of chapter 1 is, do you want to know what an authentic Christian looks like? She is someone who doesn't run for the shadows when the truth of God's light is shown upon her. She lives in the truth. As gut-wrenching as it may be, she dwells in the reality of her condition instead of looking for ways to hide it. Or escape from it. And in our passage, this is especially true regarding the confession of our sin. Choosing to remain stubborn to admitting sin takes on a different character for those who are in the faith already. The problem is no longer admitting that we are sinners. We all do that. Sometimes with way too much satisfaction and gusto behind it. The problem is not even in us admitting to various particular sins. You and I do this as well, sometimes with way too much zest, especially if it's going to help us fit in or to commiserate with those we want to feel a part of. No, for those of us who invested a long time ago into believing and confessing and owning up to our own sinfulness, the problem now is not wanting to admit to sin ...in ourselves that ruins our own self-perception. The hardest is admitting to sins we detest the most in others. Sins we thought that would never make our struggle list... ...or sins we thought we'd crossed off our struggle list a long time ago. We definitely don't want to be guilty of sins we laugh at in others... Sin we went out of our way a long time ago to avoid by choosing this church over that one or this denomination over that one or choosing to send our kids to this school but not that one. Choosing to eat this kind of food. Choosing to enjoy this kind of entertainment or to discipline our children this way but not that way. In other words... It would take more than a death threat to drag a confession of sin from us. That means invalidating our sense of identity. Especially an identity we took a long time building with a lot of decisions over a period of years. An identity that gives us a sense of importance and superiority. In the end, we're all still in eighth grade never wanting to admit to sins that mean we belong at the table over by the vending machines, seated with the geeks and the socially awkward. We want to own sins that keep us at the table with the football players and the cheerleaders and the socially popular, whoever or whatever that might mean for you or for me. To parrot Jesus' words The log that stays in our eye is a log that makes us look a lot better in the mirror. And to admit that it is there and to remove it would mean having to admit that we had a false mirror all along. And so we'd rather remain in the dark or in the shadows at least, close enough to the light to tell ourselves we really live there while staying just lonely enough to be miserable, but hidden enough to find comfort in our own false perception. And this is what John is confronting in the last half of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the dark, while we walk hiding from who we are, pretending we're someone we'd rather be, we lie. We do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For John, being people who walk in light, as verse 7 says, means being people who live not in denial, but in honesty and integrity with our present condition, especially as it regards sin. And the way that we do this for John Is through confession. Confession of sin in verse 9 contextually means to agree with God, even though the word confess doesn't always mean that in the New Testament. Here it does mean that. We agree with Him that we still have indwelling sin, that we've done particular sins even, and that these sins are what they are. We call them what God calls them. Instead of dressing them up, Our confession does not, of course, merit forgiveness at all. The effectiveness, the efficacy, the power of confession does not lie in how detailed or how morose or how virtuous it may measure. Rather, see what John says in verse 9 God is faithful and God is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not the purity of your confession. Confession is a means of grace, but it does not hold the power in itself to forgive. Only God, because of His grace, forgives. Our confession is not a transaction where we give God our list of admitted sins and He gives us forgiveness across the counter. Confession is not for Him. It's for us. It's for us. David writes in Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, when I refused to admit and confess to it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Confession of sin removes the weight of guilt from us. Confession of sin reminds us of our place at the foot of the cross and therefore enables us to forgive others who are at the same foot of the same cross and even those who are not. We confess in order to have restored fellowship with God and restored fellowship with others. Confession doesn't cause God to stoop down to us. He already has. Confession tugs us back from our shame and our shadows and it turns us around once again to see our loving Father who never left, who has been waiting to welcome us at Jesus' cross all along that brings us into the light where we are assured that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But our passage is not only concerned with forgiving grace, it's not only concerned with excuse of grace. For John, the gospel is not just an inward experience of washing and cleansing, but an outward, external process of change and of transformation as well. And so chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, John focuses the light of God's truth on another point of evaluation, another diagnostic, our obedience to his commandments, or to say it another way, our Christ-likeness, our conformity to the image of Christ. Throughout our passage, we see the apostle confronting many of the sentiments that popular evangelical culture has about sin and salvation. John confronts the idea that sin is not intrinsic to our person. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. He contradicts the idea that sin is compulsory or inevitable by God's design. "Eh, That's just the way God made me. That's just my personality. It's just the way I am. He rejects the Gnostic notion that salvation alters the destiny of our soul someday but leaves the behavior of our body today pretty much the same. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And he rejects the view often cited by liberals that scriptural tolerance forbids us to make ethical distinction of any kind. Well, I mean... Judge not, lest you be judged. I mean, John would certainly see kernels of truth in everything that I just said, in all of those views. And there are kernels of truth in all those views. But in chapter 2, John says something quite different. John says something much more similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. John boldly tells us in the words of a contemporary commentator that we have been liberated from the, convul- the compulsion to believe, the compulsion to behave and love in ways that fall short of God's glorious and transforming light. The gospel is telling us here that when it invades someone's life, as Aaron said last week, it has and always has a full renovation in mind. As we sang earlier in our first hymn, The transforming power of the gospel lets no vice or sin remain that resists God's holy war. To be crass, to put it this way, God doesn't take on a contract to renovate, to save someone, and then stop halfway through the job. So how do we know that we are people who have received grace, people who know God? John says in verse 3. We keep his commandments. Because we are now meriting something with him? Of course not. Merit has nothing to do with it. Never think that just because we've moved from talking about forgiveness to talking about doing good works, we've left the absolute need for grace. We haven't at all. The grace that saves us and cleanses us and washes us and justifies us is the grace that produces the good works. It's the same grace. You've not left grace once you start talking about good works. Grace and good works are not mutually exclusive. Grace and merit are. Grace and earning are. Grace and wages are. But not grace and commandment following. Not grace and good works. Not grace and good deeds. Grace comes to empower them. Grace equally accomplishes both our cleansing and our pruning. As in John 15, God doesn't just come along with his grace and spray down dirty branches. He then removes dead branches and spoiled fruit to make room for healthy fruit. His saving grace always does both. In fact, the Greek word for cleanse in chapter 1, verse 7, where Jesus' blood cleanses us for all sin, is the same word for pruning in John 15. Cleanse and prune are the same word. I think the double meaning is intentional. And So as a result, John can say in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments... Does not bear any fruit at all. Does not demonstrate commandment keeping through the love of others. Does not demonstrate any Christ likeness. This one is a liar and has no truth in him because God's grace doesn't work any other way. Even as I preach this part of John's epistle, I cringe a little inside. I do. I don't cringe because I'm worried that it's not true. I cringe because I know how especially sensitive consciences can hear this. I know there's a lot of sensitive consciences out there and up here. But the good news for us is long before you and I cringed reading and preaching this, the Holy Spirit gave us the remedy for our cringing through John as he wrote it. This is why the Spirit gave us verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. The Spirit, through John, is not expecting that true believers will ever reach perfection in this life. Or even be bearing fruit that is obvious to all people all the time. Although John is speaking in very absolute terms, he's doing it to contradict his adversaries who are trying to separate salvation from any concrete obedience at all. John is writing all of these things that we may not sin, as verse 1 says. But he has just finished saying that we make God out to be a liar if we ever claim to be without indwelling sin. Which means that he also expects us to always be people in process. A people who live as a mixture of truth and error, purity and sin. Experiencing, as the Westminster Confession calls it, the irreconcilable war between the desires of our flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And then John gives us the most comforting words of all. But if anyone does sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice, or the full satisfaction for all of God's wrath for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. These verses contain double good news. Not only has Jesus paid the full price to satisfy God's wrath in the past, on the cross, He is right now, today, this morning, continuing in his ministry of being our advocate, our lawyer before the Father. But not only is Jesus our intercessor, he is righteous with the same burning righteousness that the Father has. And this means that what he continually pleads and urges in the presence of his Father on our behalf is always acceptable. And what does he plead on our behalf? As verse 2 tells us, in the words of John Calvin, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. That's what he pleads. The way to greater obedience and Christlikeness in our lives will never be found in outgrowing this wonderful truth. We will never be so sanctified that we don't need it anymore. And any spiritual development theology that suggests a detour around it is not from God. We begin and continue and end with God's grace for us through Christ's work. Church. It is the assurance of this grace that enables us to walk in the light, to live in Honesty and to live in transparency before God and before others and before ourselves about our sin and our shortcomings and our goofiness and to stop looking for shadows to hide it. Boldly live in this light. Amen. Father, You are the source of all light. The source of all truth. The source of all light that shines upon our sin and reveals it to be what it is. But also, the source of light that purifies. The burning fire that comes and purifies. That purifies us of our guilt, but also purifies us of our deeds purifies us of our wrong, loves and restores them with your own. Father, would you be doing that in us? Would you be doing that in us as a congregation? Would you be doing that in us as individual families, as individual believers, as a part of your church? Make us people of light who walk in the light as you are in the light, that people would see that we are your church, that we are your loved ones, that we are the ones who know you, that they may be drawn and that they may come to know you, that they may believe in the light-giving Jesus and in his gospel. pray all these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.